Well, in case you haven't noticed, we are a nation obsessed with rights, with rights. And much of this is laudable. So many of the first settlers to this new world escaped England in search for the right to worship according to the dictates of their own conscience. Our Declaration of Independence enshrined forever this notion of inalienable rights, right? The right to life and to liberty and to the pursuit of happiness. You know, following the, the ratification of our own constitution, there was a concern that rights wouldn't be significantly protected. And so, of course, we had after that the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments, the right to free speech, the right to the free exercise of press, to freedom of religion, the right to bear arms. And this concern for personal rights really hasn't waned, but it's only increased over the centuries. So, of course, in the 18th century, Susan B. Anthony led the women's suffrage movement, right? The right for women to vote. Civil rights dominated the landscape of the the last 20th century. We speak of equal rights under the law. And thus, we fought against discrimination, based upon race or color or religion or sex or national origin. We speak of our right to privacy. This past week, we celebrated the seven-year anniversary of the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, right? Equal pay, the right equal pay for equal work. We speak of the the right for marriage. We even talk today of the right to define our own gender, If you want to advocate for something in today's world, merely put it forth as a right. Turn it into a right. The right to universal health care or the right to free college tuition. But what happens when those rights collide? What happens when our personal rights collide with another's personal rights? When the right to privacy, for example, conflicts with the government's duty to protect its citizens. Or when the rights to the free exercise of religion means that religious institutions can no longer hire based on religious convictions because those convictions violate the rights of LGBT persons. Like Much of the tension we face as a nation is based upon this collision of conflicting rights. Right? What do we do? We run to the courts to settle our disputes. But what happens when rights collide in the church? What happens when they collide in the church? What are Christians to do when they encounter such conflict with one another? Do we as well lawyer up and run to the courts? How are we to think about disputes within our own body? How are we practically to d- deal with the various grievances we may have with one another? Well, to help us think about these things, I want to welcome you to turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You can turn there. You can find it on page 954 of your pew Bible or swipe it if that's how you open your Bibles. But either way, turn there if you would, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's going to help us think through some of these things. And as you turn, if you're visiting and uh, new to the series in 1 Corinthians, let me give you a bit of an overview. Corinth was a young, bustling Roman colony situated between sort of key trade routes of east and west of the Roman Empire. It didn't have an entrenched Roman aristocracy. And so this uh, prosperous 
city that was teeming with, with wealth and with trade became the perfect place to go to make a name for yourself, right? To better your position, to get ahead in life. And thus, individualism and ambition ruled in Corinth. And in the early 50s AD, Paul arrives in Corinth. He preaches the gospel. He plants a church. He moves on to Ephesus, but he's not there long until he starts to hear that things aren't well back in Corinth. That there is a church, that church has been racked now by dissolution and by division. And so Paul writes 1 Corinthians, this book we've been studying, to help right that ship back in Corinth. And his basic argument, we said, of the whole book, just summarize the whole book in a sentence, the character of our gatherings is to increasingly reflect the character of our God. That's the basic argument throughout the book. The character of our gatherings is to increasingly reflect the character of our God. We've said the problem wasn't there was a church in Corinth. The problem was there's too much of Corinth in the church. Last week in chapter 5, we saw how they were valuing, the Corinthian church was, the social standing of many of their members even more than the sin that was in their midst. So Paul calls them to properly judge one another within the body, which is what they weren't doing. And yet as we get to chapter 6, it seems they're not only failing to judge those within the body, but they're actually taking one another before judges outside the body. That's the connection of chapter 5 into chapter 6. For Corinthian, uh, Corinth, Rather, in the Corinthian society, it was it a was society, in this sense, pretty similar to our own. It was a deeply litigious culture. Lawsuits were commonplace. So how's Paul going to instruct them to think about lawsuits within their midst and grievances within their midst? And let's read. And as you do, just if you are new to the Bible, just a note, that big, bold number, six, that's what we call the chapter number. And those little superscript numbers, those are what we refer to as the verse numbers. So we're going to be going through chapter six, verses one through eight. Let's read. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Friends, Paul once again is taking a hammer, a hammer to their swollen pride. We talked about the spiritual swagger, right, they had last week. Well, that swagger was, right, they were strutting right down to the courthouse with one another. And Paul grabs them by the shirt collar. He takes them to the woodshed again in chapter 6. You ignore, he says, 
You ignore that scandalous case of incest among your midst. You ignore that, and yet you have the gall to haul fellow Christians before the secular courts over minor matters. He's saying, are you kidding me? Seriously, in the church, this is how you're acting with one another. Right? There's no mistaking his exasperation, his vexation, the indignation. Right? You can, you can hear it, you can feel it as he writes. And his basic argument sort of is this, sort of six, one to eight in a sentence. He says to them, it is better to be defrauded. It's better to be defrauded than to deride Christ by demanding your rights. I think that's the gist of his argument. It is better to be defrauded than to deride Christ by demanding your rights. So in verse 1, we have the situation. Members of the church, right, they're lawyering up and they're taking one another to the secular courts. And in verses 2 to 6, Paul gives to them his response. He says, one day you will be reigning with Christ, reigning in his heavenly court, judging the nations. That is what you will be. Therefore, can you not even now judge trivial cases? And then in verses 7 to 8, I think he infers from all this his main point. And he just says, listen, lawsuits reveal that you're, you've already lost. For you've chosen to pursue your rights over Christ's reputation. And as we reflect upon these verses, I just want us to consider two points. They'll serve as the two points this morning. The first is this. Lawsuits destroy our unity. Lawsuits destroy our unity. And then secondly, lawsuits betray our identity. Secondly, lawsuits, they betray our identity. Let's think first. Lawsuits destroy our unity. They destroy our unity. It'll come as no surprise. Lawsuits are big business, right? Divorce court, often pejoratively referred to as divorce corp, right? A $50 billion a year industry by some measures. And when one is served papers, right, whether it's divorce or any other proceedings, when you're served papers, it said, you know, nothing personal, only business. And yet if you've ever been on the other end of such a suit, you know that those lawsuits, they feel intensely personal. Studies show, for example, that when marriages go to court, the likelihood of repairing that marriage after it's gone to court, well, that falls drastically. For lawsuits, lawsuits tear at the very fabric of our relationships with one another. They create wounds that, that even time, considerable amounts of time, simply cannot heal. And that was as true in Paul's day as it is true in our own day. Litigation, it was rampant in the Greco-Roman world. Historians have noted that lawsuits in Rome were one of the single greatest generators of private hostility among citizens. But there's just one considerable difference between a lot of the uh, lawsuits in Paul's day in, in Roman courts and what we see in our own day. So we have this category of, of what's called vexatious litigation. I know you all came to church to learn about this. Vexatious litigation. It's litigation that's pursued merely to malign one's character, right? To harass or to subdue an adversary. Such litigation, that's considered an abuse of the judicial process. It often results in fines, can result in disbarment, right? There are significant penalties if you pursue vexatious litigation. 
But Rome didn't actually have protections like that. Thus, the purpose of litigation in Rome was often not. It was often not about justice. But it became a means by which you would seek to punish your enemy. Dragging one into court was was how you damaged their reputation. And it was how you enhanced your reputation in society. It was sort of a means of one-upsmanship. And in that sense, courtrooms looked a lot more like political primaries where you've got you know character assassinations and individuals slinging mud at one another than it looked anything like the court cases we might find in our own courts. And so without established police force, you didn't have in Corinth an intricate system of laws and appeals. The outcome of civil suits became much more about power and about money than they were about justice. Verdicts would have been bought and sold. It was a system that favored the wealthy and those with status. Thus Cicero would lament, courts never convict any man, however guilty, if only he has money. It's why, if you, if you remember James 2.6, are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? And it appears the Corinthian church was resulting some of that same chicanery. And Paul, here, you can see he's incensed. He's incensed with them. That word dare in verse 1 that we read, it actually begins the sentence in the Greek. Paul's saying, do you dare? Do you dare? Do you have the audacity to take your grievances and to go ahead as a church and air your dirty laundry before the world? He says in verse 5, I say this to your shame. Right? You ought to be mortified, not gratified. You ought to be mortified by your own behavior. You know, we, and we read that, you, you want to be ashamed, and we think, well, wait, back in chapter 4, he said he wrote not to make them ashamed, rather, but to admonish them. And maybe he says that in chapter 4 because he's dealing with his own personal relationship with the Corinthians, and he didn't in any way want to use shame in order to personally gain. Or maybe it's because in chapter 5, there's, there's so much more at stake. Right? Their witness of the gospel to the world is part of what's at stake in chapter, rather in chapter 6. Either way, Paul, he wants the Corinthians to feel the sting. He wants their cheeks to burn hot with embarrassment over their behavior among one another. And so he goes on in verse 5, and colloquially speaking, he says, Do you mean to tell me? Do you mean to tell me, you all-wise Corinthians, remember they proud of themselves and their wisdom, you all-wise Corinthians, you've got your Ivy League degrees you know, hanging prominently on all those decorated walls, and do you mean to tell me that you, so wise, that there's not even one of you, just one, who's able to make a judgment on such minor matters? Sarcasm, right? It's dripping from his pen. He's shaming them. He's doing to them what they're doing to Christ by bringing lawsuits into the world. If we're not talking about criminal lawsuits, that's actually not what Paul is addressing here. He calls them, notice what he calls them in verse 3, he calls them trivial cases. Verse 3 refers to things pertaining to this life. And the, the clear sense is that Paul's addressing more minor civil matters. That word for defrauded in verse 7 is often used 
um, in terms of disputes with property or with personal belongings. And Romans 13, we know from Romans 13 that, that God gives states the right under him to execute justice. So Paul's not saying in 1 Corinthians 6 that Christians should sweep every injustice under the rug. He's not saying that. Verse 7, you know, would you not rather be wronged or suffer wrong? Would you rather not be defrauded? He's not saying verse 7 is a call to ignore abuse, whether it's within the church or outside the church. I think that would be misunderstanding what's happening here in Corinth. This is not an absolute prohibition for Christians to go to the courts for recourse. Remember, Paul himself in Acts 16 will go to the Roman courts for his own protection. What Paul's dealing with here amidst the body are these more petty, trivial, civil matters that they are facing amongst one another. And their petty lawsuits are just another way in which they're destroying the unity that they're to have. And so Paul's saying, justice before the courts, right? if that's at the expense of unity, that justice is injustice. You know, justice before the courts at the expense of unity is injustice. Why does he say that? Because God cares deeply about the unity of his church. Recall chapter 1 through 4 dealt so much with this topic of division. And when he noted the divisions that were among them, what did he say? He said, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? Christ is one, right? His church is to be one in him. So when we allow divisions to fester within the body, we begin to deny that very gospel that called us into one fellowship through one faith in one baptism and one God and Father of all, Ephesians 4, 4 to 7. And now, of course, we're not myopic. We understand that in a body this large, there are going to be disagreements with one another. There certainly will be. But we need to deal with such disagreements, especially those more minor disagreements frankly, the kind of disagreements that we're going to face most of in the body, we're to deal with those more minor disagreements with a spirit of charity and humility that seeks to protect our own unity. Paul says in Romans twelve eighteen, if possible, so far as it depends on you, what does he say? Live peaceably with all. And we do that in part as a body by being willing to overlook offenses, something apparently this Corinthian church, at least those of high standing within the society, were unwilling to do. Are we to be a church, thinking back to 1 Corinthians 5, called to discipline the member in clear and serious and unrepentant sin? Well, yes, we are. But even more, we must first be known in here as a forgiving and as a forbearing community, a community that's willing to overlook personal offenses because we prize our corporate unity more than our own personal gain. I wonder what you care about more. I wonder what you care about more. Do you care more about the reputation of this church and the community? Or do you actually care quite a bit more about your own reputation within the community? Would you be willing to sacrifice your own reputation if it meant the reputation of this church was preserved? Would you be willing to suffer loss 
in some objective, meaningful way if it meant the unity and the purity and the witness of this church would be held together. Now, I, I trust for some of you those, are, those sound like odd questions. We don't tend to think along those categories and along those lines. For we live in a rights culture. Nothing is more cherished than the right and the sovereignty of the individual. And yet, while we may be legally justified in filing, uh, filing a lawsuit, the Christian, a Christian has to always evaluate much more than merely the letter of the law. Right? Just because it's legal doesn't make it right. Too often we forget that. Because the gospel, what does the gospel do? The gospel calls us to look beyond ourselves, to treasure something actually much greater than our individual rights. It calls us to be willing to lay aside those rights for the sake of the love and unity of something greater, something larger than the rights of any one individual. And this is the kind of living that Paul is calling them to because it's the kind of same living that Christ had called them to, and it's related to the witness, their corporate witness as a church. Notice how often that word brother arises in these verses. Verse 5, he speaks of disputes between the brothers. And when you refer to that term, he's not meaning literally biological brothers. He's meaning those who are united in Christ as one family. Disputes between the brothers. Verse 6, but brother goes to law against brother. Or verse 8, but you yourself wrong and defraud, right, even your own brothers. Their spiritual relation, that's meant to emphasize the repulsiveness of what's happening there in Corinth. And again, this in front, Paul says, of unbelievers. Romans actually forbid most family disputes from coming before the court because to do so, to have a family dispute publicly in the courts, that was to bring too much shame and dishonor to the family. And yet Paul's saying that's exactly what you're doing, bringing that kind of shame and dishonor when you bring that out into the secular courts. He says, what does it say about a church? What does it say about a church when its members believe They'll get better treatment from those outside the church than they will from those inside the church. What does it say about a church when we think we'll get better treatment from those outside than those from within? Right? Such a church, at that point, it's forfeited its witness. It promises a gospel that has the power to transform lives, and yet, by its own living, it betrays that very gospel. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. How will they know if you have love for one another? So Paul's saying lawsuits within the body destroy that witness because what it does is it prioritizes self-love over gospel love. And in doing so, it destroys the witness to the world and it destroys that often precious and tenuous unity in the gospel that's created within a church family. It destroys that. But lawsuits don't just destroy that unity. A second thing Right? It betrays our identity. Lawsuits, secondly, lawsuits betray our identity. If you look, if you will look down with me to verse two. Paul writes, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? 
Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? If you've been reading through these chapters, you know that expression, do not, do you not know? Do you not know? It's a common refrain. You're going to find it about 10 times in the book. But of those 10, you find seven of them in chapters 5 and 6. Right? Again, this is just another way Paul's poking at them. He's poking at them. You take pride in all your lofty wisdom and knowledge. You boast of your many degrees, but you don't even know your spiritual ABCs. That's what he's saying. That's the danger with pride. That's what was happening in their own pride. Right? They were immune. They had become immune to being taught or to being corrected or to being challenged. Well, friends, be wary of that same pride in your own hearts that marked the Corinthian church. For the proud, right? what do they do? They boast in all the knowledge they possess as opposed to being humbled but that all they have not yet attained, right? The truly humble are people who are deeply aware of the things they have not yet learned, the things they once learned and have since forgotten, and the things they will never learn. And in my own mind, there are a lot of things in my own life that fit into all those categories. And a humble person knows that. They knows that. And they know that omniscience is not a communicable attribute. That's God. It's not us. We don't possess such information. In their pride, the Corinthians had valued the world's wisdom more than God's word. And they were trusting too much in that. And that was leading them astray. And it's just a good warning to us. We need to watch that same pride that might well up in our hearts. Whether or not it's wisdom and knowledge, whether or not it's our sufficiency through our finances, whether it's it could be any host of things. It's that same pride that can wreak havoc on a church. But what do they specifically not know? Well, Paul says, one day they will judge the world and angels. It just begs the question, Paul, what in the world are you talking about? They're going to judge the world and angels. Well, if you've read through the Gospels, you might remember Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19, 28, when he says to the disciples, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Or the Apostle John in Revelations 2, 26. Revelation says, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Revelation 24 speaks of believers seated on the thrones and ruling with the authority to judge. Jude 6 refers to the sort of fallen angels receiving judgment on that great day. And it seems that what Paul's getting at is that on that final day, believers will be forgiven and they're going to be put in a position alongside of Christ where they're going to approve of his judgments upon a fallen world. But Paul's point here is not to develop some doctrine of how we are going to participate in the final judgment. That's actually not his point. He's merely trying to highlight the inconsistency, the disturbing inconsistency between what they will be doing and what they're currently doing. That's what he's, by raising this, that's what he's trying to highlight, that inconsistency. He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. If they will one day judge the world and angels, can they not now adjudicate? Can they not now just sort out their own private, comparatively inconsequential matters with one another? Can they not do this? 
In other words, Paul's saying, listen, your future identity ought to determine your present activity. That's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, understanding your future identity ought to be determinative in your own present activity. But instead, he says, listen, you're going to court. You're publicly airing your grievances with another. Everything is reversed from what it ought to be. Right? They're seeking temporal justice, temporal justice at the hands of the unjust that they will one day be called to judge. Right? All backward, incongruous, like nonsensical. It just shouldn't be this way. And that's why he says in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? For no matter who wins or loses the lawsuit, Paul's saying you all lose spiritually. You all lose spiritually. We forfeit our unity. We forfeit our witness when we forget our identity. And I think this gets to the heart of Paul's main point. To demand, to demand what you think you deserve, he's saying that's already a defeat. It's already a defeat. Instead of insisting upon your rights, why not forgo those rights? Why not bear the cost? Why not take the hit? It's what Jesus teaches in Matthew 5.39 in the Sermon on the Mount. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. It's what Paul says in Romans 12.17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And we just have to confess, those are hard verses. That's hard to do. How often, instead of turning a cheek, am I quietly just clenching a fist? There's frustration. There is anger. And so what would give these Corinthians, and what would give us the ability to live out these commands? To ask ourselves, why not rather suffer wrong? Well, here's the thing. Paul's command to them, it only makes sense if you grasp that you have nothing to lose. Paul's command only makes sense if you grasp that you have finally nothing to lose. If suffering wrong is not an ultimate threat to you, if being defrauded poses no real loss to you. And that's exactly what the gospel does. It teaches us that there are no ultimate grievances because Christ has borne those ultimate grievances in our own place. The gospel teaches us right, we're not finally victims. We're the victimizers. It's because of our sin that Christ suffered wrong on the cross. It's because of our sin that he suffered loss in our own place. Another put it well, Christ endured every imaginable wrong in order to win for us every imaginable right. And the gospel reminds us our inheritance, it is not here. Identity, our identity is in another kingdom. We hope in a different and a far greater inheritance. Any loss 
any loss we face in this life, reputation, monetary, it is passing, it is momentary, it is fleeting. Any loss that we suffer for Christ, it is but a small down payment on an eternity of joy. Christian, when we are able to rightly grasp our own identity in Christ, we're no longer left having to cling to our own. We can let it go. Christ absorbed our blows, which enables us to absorb the blows of another. He bore our rejection so we can bear the rejection of others. Just to be clear, we're talking about metaphorical blows, not actual real physical blows. It's a different thing. Right? But Christ bore those blows metaphorically. He bore our rejection so we could bear it. Our gospel identity calls us to look to the cross. There on the cross is where perfect justice and perfect mercy always and only meet. And if you've come this morning, right, you've come and you're not a Christian, well, the gospel, the gospel is your only hope. It reminds us we aren't finally victims. We're not finally victims. We're actually all active, every one of us, active participants in an insurrection against God. And because God is both loving and just, he will call our sin, all sin, to account. He will do that. But because he is also gracious, because he is gracious, he has made a way for that sure and certain guilty verdict to read pardoned, to read forgiven, to read free. And he does that as Christ paid for our sins on the cross. And as we look away from our own righteousness, Whatever righteousness we think we possess, we abandon that and we look to Christ. Leave our sin, we look to him, we trust in him alone for salvation. That's the gospel that Christians believe. That's the hope we hold out. We don't hold, we don't have any other hope. That is our hope. And that's what the gospel would call you to believe. That's how you can be reconciled to God. Know your own sins can be forgiven. But members, just speaking to members of UBC, this church should be the one place on earth. I don't mean just this church, like all other churches should be evil, but any church that believes the gospel, this church, the one place on earth where the world witnesses both this justice and this grace simultaneously at work within the body. A place where sinners are both lovingly confronted and yet at the same time those sinners are quickly forgiven. A place where we call for obedience and yet we regularly experience forbearance from our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Judging is part of our witness to the world. We're not called to bring our petty disputes to the world. We're called to bring the world the gospel. We do that through our witness. We do that through our proclamation. First Peter 2.12, if you remember, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. All right, so what does this practically look like? Well, it means when we're wronged by another, we've got to resist that temptation, right, to clench the fist. And we've got to think about it, what it would look like to turn the cheek. It means not looking outside to the courts first, for redress for some of the wrongs within here. 
So what do you do if you have a grievance with a brother or sister in the body and you think it has to be dealt with? Well, you go to an elder. You talk to that elder. You explain the situation and you entrust that situation to their care as an expression of how you finally entrust yourself to Christ. More trivial matters. Right? They're to be settled through mediation within the body. They're not to be settled outside by the hands of other courts. Well, what if this person's not a member of this church? It's just a great time to weigh your own heart. What are you pursuing? Are you pursuing your own rights? Or are you pursuing Christ's reputation? Or, and it may just right there, you may just say, you know what, why not rather suffer wrong? That's what it looks like to be a Christian in this circumstance. But maybe it's more serious. Maybe this person you're concerned about is habitually harming others as well, and the loving thing to do is not to leave it alone. But you actually need to do more than that. Well, again, that's where these, these circumstances can get so varied and so complicated. Go to your elders. If the person and that other person is a member of a like-minded evangelical church, maybe they can work with their leaders to deal with the situation. Maybe there are other means of redress. But again, get counsel when you have such questions. But I think even more to the spirit of what Paul is saying, he's just saying, ask that question. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather suffer wrong? Which means when someone says something behind our backs, we're not to engage in a quiet smear campaign to malign their name as we seek to clear our own name. It means when we lend something to another person, we don't become critical or disparaging of that person when it comes back rather used, you know, or the tank is empty. It means if you're in a disagreement with another, maybe it's a, it's a close friend, maybe it's a spouse. Do you work in that disagreement such that you're trying to correct every false statement? You know, object, I object. That actually wasn't entirely true what you just said. Is that how you approach your relationships? Are you approaching your relationships like it is a court of law? You're trying to clear your name. Do you act as if you're an innocent? Of course, you're the innocent party in this, as opposed to the one who's also a sinner, a forgiven sinner. Are you willing to look beyond any barbed words in a discussion, in a disagreement, and actually hear the heart of the matter that that person is sharing and deal with that instead? You know, I think those are some of the practical ways in which we seek to suffer wrong, to rather be defrauded. It means we look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Namely, again, the unity of this body, the witness of the church. If you're in Christ, Paul's saying your chief concern ought to be for Christ's reputation, not your own personal right. I have a friend who's a, a gospel worker in the United Arab Emirates, and he wrote a book. And in the book, he, he recounts a story. And I think it, pa- it powerfully captures what it can look like when one risks suffering wrong and being defrauded as opposed to demanding rights and therefore evacuating the power of the gospel. And he tells the story. He said, three men sat in my living room with me. Across from me sat my pastor, John. On my right and left sat two high-powered businessmen, skilled and toughened over the years from international business. These two gave cold and hard glances at each other. Briefcases filled with legal poison, 
bulged at both their feet. On my right sat a successful owner of the business, and on my left, the aggrieved employee. Lawsuits had been filed, and they were members of our church. Gentlemen, I said, turning to the man on my left, I want to start by saying that we are gathered here to ask you, Mike, the aggrieved worker, to drop your lawsuit against Robert. You understand 1 Corinthians 6. You ought not to take this case to a Muslim court. Mike looked down. He fingered his legal papers written in Arabic script. And turning to the man on my right, and Robert, though you are under no compulsion to do so, after Mike drops the case, we would like you to be generous beyond the obvious amounts that this case would cost you. Robert's face flushed. He has no case at all. 300,000 he requires is absurd. He's talking dirhams, so about 80,000 U.S. dollars. It's still a hefty sum if you're a worker in the UAE. And Mike growls at that. And he says, I believe my lawyers will help you find out just how good my case really is. Wait, I interrupted, sensing I was losing control. Before we go any further, I want to say it's not the legal or the financial issues that are of first concern here. It's that we're coming together to sit at the foot of the cross and to work this out. This is how we start living out the implications of the gospel at the cross. And here he continues to write, in one sense, anyone who knows the gospel knows this in his or her heart. When I said to Mike and Robert, we're going to sit at the foot of the cross, everyone in the room felt the weight of the gospel. Contained in this one sentence was a plea to put the brutal requirements of the law aside. It was about treating others with grace, just as we have received grace from God. It was about forgiveness undeserved. It was about reconciliation. It was about the gospel lived out. So he continues back in my living room with the two businessmen and my pastor, Mike said, again, he's the aggrieved worker. Well, if I cancel the legal proceedings, what guarantee do I have that Robert will pay? None, I said. But we're not trusting in Robert. We're trusting in Christ. It's a long pause to which he finally said, okay. Okay, I'll do that. I can trust Christ. Then touched with Mike's willingness to lay aside the lawsuit, Robert leaned forward and he said, you know, my board has only authorized for me to pay 50000 But Mike, I am willing to pay out of my own pocket over the next number of months another 200000 about another $55,000. And Mike, if you're willing to trust in Christ by following the principle of 1 Corinthians 6, the church is also willing to help you from our benevolence fund in the interim, said Pastor John. At that, Mike's chin fell to his chest, and he said, Would you really do that for me? And he began to weep. Right To sit at the foot of the cross is to witness the unfolding power of the gospel in our lives. And this is the gospel that we should increasingly see witnessed here at UBC. And we're not going to learn it from the world about us. It was like two decades ago that former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Warren Berger, he noted this. He said, one reason our courts have become overburdened is that Americans are increasingly turning to the courts for relief from a range of personal distresses and anxieties. 
He says, remedies for personal wrongs, once considered the responsibility of institutions other than the courts, remedies for those wrongs are now boldly asserted as legal entitlements. We live in a rights culture. That's what Berger is saying. We live in a rights culture. We demand what we think we deserve. But the gospel teaches us that what we deserve, well, that's been demanded of Christ. That's been demanded of Christ. Having your identity there, with that in mind, how will you respond the next time you are wronged. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we praise you for your word. We, we trust in your sovereign goodness and providence that this is a word we need to hear. We don't often think about lawsuits within the church, and yet we know that grievances exist and left unattended or dealt with in an unbiblical and ungodly way, they will tear apart at our unity, at our witness. Father, we pray that increasingly the gospel would begin to shape our own lives and it would bear testimony within this body and within the community of Fayetteville around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.